listening to Nightlight. And so nice to have you with us for another Nightlight show. Our guest on the program this week is John Rose, who's been visiting Uganda on a one-month mission. John's an old friend of mine who I haven't seen for many, many years. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. John, nice to see you again after such a long time. Maybe you can tell our listeners how we first met. Well, I met Simon way back in ancient Greece, it seems. It was actually 1980. Simon had just come from uh, India or Dubai where he was recording the Music with Meaning show. And he was moving to Greece. And I was working in Greece doing Christian mission work. And we met. So I helped Simon a lot in the early days with the logistics business side of things. We haven't seen each other since. Yes, (laughs) since 1982. Since 1982. And we got back together in communication basically through Facebook. Right. And I believe you had read the testimonies of Melvin. Right. Our listeners will be very familiar with Melvin and his teachings and um, also his mission work, his five mission trips here to Uganda. And uh, it was something that, that you wanted to also come and do and experience. Tell us about why you were particularly eager to come to Uganda from, from where you've been. Well, in 1982, when we left Greece together, uh, I believe you went to Philippines, for the next 34 years, I worked in the Islamic world in a wide variety of countries. I've lived mm-hmm. in five different Muslim countries and visited five or six other Muslim countries. So when I got back in touch, I started following nightlife, and I heard Melvin's stories, and I read something he wrote, and you were looking for other people to come and do mission trips. I wrote in. That was two years ago. It took two years to get here, and I'm so glad I came Because living in the Islamic world, you don't have the freedoms that you have here in Uganda. I'm not sure if the people of Uganda realize how free they are to talk about Jesus openly and speak about him and praise and worship in public. But where I live, we have to work very undercover. And sometimes we have to be friends with someone for almost one year before we even bring up Jesus. Mm -hmm. But it is fruitful work in the Islamic world. We've uh, won disciples who since then have gone become missionaries themselves both to other muslims and some to europe and they become great missionaries reaching the european youth who are so surprised to see a muslim become a christian and they pay extra attention when a muslim speaks to them about jesus john i believe that this is your first visit to sub-saharan africa tell us what you've been doing here and what have been some of your impressions of the place well first of all Uganda is absolutely beautiful, so green, so rich in uh, beauty. And the greatest beauty I found was the people, the warm smiles, the friendliness. So I was able to visit Jinja, the source of the Nile. It was beautiful. And while there, I did some classes to a fellowship there. Then since then, I've traveled to Mbarara. Mbarara. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Ishaka area, mm-hmm. and finally to Fort Portal. Mm-hmm. And each place I visited, I, I think each place just got better, better, and better, the, the beauty of these places. And I would encourage anyone listening to come and visit Uganda. I see why now they call it the Pearl of Africa, both for its physical beauty and for the warmth and the friendliness of the people. Africa, see how we can 
Since that song was recorded by Richard Coessa in our studio in 2001, I've spent quite a bit of time in Africa and it's become home for me and my family because we can't think of a nicer place where we could live. The climate, the friendly people, the natural foods, and more than anything else, the Christian atmosphere and the number of people who love Jesus and are so hungry to be taught God's word. So we're always happy when someone would like to come for a mission here. 
to teach, and we do everything we can to facilitate and organize their time here. I think also, John, for a Bible teacher, it's like a heaven on earth because you found people so desperately hungry for the word and so hungry to be taught and so serious in their Bible study time with you. Right. I was very impressed by the hunger of the word. I taught on three or four different subjects, and each time the groups of pastors and different members of the church who would be there would be out taking notes, studying it, asking very deep and sincere questions afterwards about the subject to make sure they understood. And they would say, okay, good, I want to understand, you know, I understand now because I want to teach it to others. So it is a Bible teacher's paradise as well here. Mm -hmm. There's just an incredible hunger for the Word of God in this land. Absolutely. And we'd organized it for you so that you were teaching in some of the places that Melvin taught. So you were, in effect, coming to water the seed that he had planted. Yes, I was highly impressed by the fruit that remained from Melvin's work. It just shows what one person can do to change the world. And I met people who spent day after day after day, months, teaching them the Bible every day. And since then, two of the people I met have started their own works, one being Sally, starting the Brides Club. Then up in Fort Porto, Robert has opened up a little mini school, has adopted some orphans, and is growing in the word and faith. And he says everything that he has right now, he attributes it to his and Melvin's prayer. He gave a lot of credit to Melvin and, of course, to Lord for what's been done up in Fort Portal. And it's just like the church is growing and expanding. Mm-hmm. So it's a classic example of 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, teach others to teach others to teach others, teaching faithful people. It's nightlight. What a delight. John, on this show, I'd like you to share with us some of the lessons you've learned over the past 34 years in relating and witnessing to Muslims. I know you've been teaching on that topic whilst you've been here, but you've also been teaching on some other topics. And maybe you could share with us an overview of some of the main points from the classes that you've been sharing. Well, Simon, one was a class on humility. And I got the idea from a book by Andrew Murray, who was an African missionary uh, in the early 1900s or late 1800s. And I was really impressed by the book. And being a person who struggled with pride, which is really the affliction of uh, almost all of us human beings here, it's part of our human nature to be proud of things. Right. When I read the book, I realized how little I grasped of the subject of humility. And he was very surprised back in the early 1900s of how little humility was taught in the churches. Hmm. And I can say the same thing today. I recently taught a class in Europe before coming here, and the pastors said, we haven't heard this. And they felt it's a message that needed to be heard by the churches. Wow. Pride being part of our nature, and it's encouraged in society today to think about yourself, make yourself great. And we have to fight against that. Way back in the Old Testament, Micah, Micah said, What does it, Lord God, require of thee but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Uh And you see in the New Testament that Jesus said, Come unto me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. So Jesus said to learn of me. Uh So in this book that I read, Humility, uh, Andrew Murray went in depth about Jesus' teaching, Jesus' life, how he taught and lived humility. I mean, Simon, if you think about Jesus, he's a classic example of humility. Right. I mean, there's no greater sample of humility than the life Jesus lived from his birth all the way up until his death. He lived the most 
humble life imaginable. And I think this is one thing that everybody can strive for, no matter what your station is in life, what your circumstances are, rich or poor. We can all strive to be humble. Yes, uh, it's actually something Paul emphasized. He said in uh, Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Put on the mind of Christ. It says of Jesus, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto the death. Yes. So Andrew Murray brought, brought out in his book that it was Jesus' humility that gave him the power to die for us. He humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can just share a few other, other reasons why we should uh, strive for humility. Yes. One reason is just if we realize our fallen state. The Bible talks about the first Adam and the second Adam, and we're made after the first Adam, which sin is inherent in us. Right. You can read all through the Bible from Isaiah, our, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Jesus himself said, why callest thou me good? Paul said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if we realize that and truly catch it, that in itself should make us humble. Yes. And of course, just if we meditate upon how great God is, he's mm-hmm. the creator. This beautiful earth he's given us. Mm-hmm. The beautiful green, the lakes, the rivers, the creation, mm-hmm. that in itself should cause us to be humble. Right. As Jesus said, we can do nothing. The air we breathe, the food we have, everything comes from the Lord. But it's easy to forget that as we get busy with our ministries and our work, and we start taking things for granted. Yes. And another good reason to strive for humility is, says God, resist the proud. Paul mm-hmm. said, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Mm-hmm. I can say sometimes when I got away from the Lord, you get a little bit proud about what you're doing or you accept the praise of man, which is very dangerous. I've been in dangerous situations in my life, and people would say, oh, John, you're so brave. You've been here or there, whether it was in Palestine or different places, Syria and that, or working with the Syrian refugees. And if people would say, oh, John, you're so brave, the danger is you start thinking you're brave. Mm-hmm. And the minute you start thinking like that, a little wall goes up between you and the Lord, mm-hmm. and you lose that sweet communion, that sweet connection. Mm-hmm. And God usually has to do something to humble you. So it's good to strive for humility. You're with Nightlight. Another reason is that humility and love are very connected. Without deep humility, your works of love will be as tinkling brass. Your works will not reflect the true spirit of his love if you try and take any amount of credit for what Jesus does through you. Right. So mm-hmm. seek to be humble, try to be humble, because that was the very nature and spirit of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Psalm 25, 9 says, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his ways. And Proverbs said, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. When we get wise in our own eyes, thinking we can do it, mm-hmm. I think that's when we have danger. Mm-hmm. You see that in the Old Testament. Saul, when he thought he knew better than the prophet, disobeyed mm-hmm. the prophet, think you could find the story in 1 Samuel 15, mm-hmm. it ended up losing him the kingdom. So there's a big danger in being proud and thinking that we can do it. Believe it or not, the Bible says that God himself lives with the humble. Isaiah 57, 15 states, For thus saith the high and holy and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place, and also with him that is of a, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, 
to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Mm. So it's a prerequisite, if you want the Lord to live with you, you have to be walking in humility. Yes. It's a very sobering thought. And I think, too, humility will, is a key factor in answering one of Jesus' final prayers. In John seventeen twenty and 21, Jesus said, Neither I pray for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in them, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I think there's a lot of pride in the Christian world where we think our religion mm-hmm. is better than the other religion. This branch of Christianity is better than the other branch of Christianity. And we don't reflect the love of Jesus as we should. And therefore the world does not see Christ in us. It's not the testimony to the world. It says that the world may believe that you have sent me if we have unity. Mm-hmm. So I think humility is a key factor to unity which is why the New Testament writers stress time and time again, serve one another in love, esteem other better than yourself. So until the Christians can do that, I don't think we'll have the unity to win the world as we should, to be the sample that we should. The world I thought belonged to me Goods, gold and people, land and sea Where'er I walk Beneath God's sky In those days my word was I Years passed, there flashed my pathway near The fragment of a vision dear My former word no more sufficed And what I said I am Christ But oh, the more I looked on Him His glory grew while mine grew dim I shrank so small, He towered so high All I dared say was Christ and die more the vision held its place and looked me steadily in the face I speak now in humbler tone and what I say
Jerry Palladino, well-known poem that he put to music and made it into a beautiful devotional song, Christ Alone. And you requested that song, John, because of course it has a lot to do with the topic that you're sharing with us, humility. Yes, I mean, I feel it's the story of most every believer's life. First, you know, once you're saved, you're so excited, it's I in Christ. But as you grow in Christ through the years, it becomes Christ and I, and finally, we get to the point we realize it's Christ alone that can do it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's so true. Humility, it was led Jesus to the cross. And it's also the secret of our redemption too. Uh, you have to humble yourself when you say the sinner's prayer, the believer's prayer, dear Jesus, come into my heart. Give me your gift of etern- eternal life. That's the humility. And as you live the Christian life, it's humility that saves you from tons of problems. Mm-hmm. So humility sh- is such a key part of the Christian life. Simon, you mentioned earlier how humble Jesus is, Mm. but if you do a close reading of St. John chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, time and time again Jesus says, I came not to do my will, but the Mm -hmm. Father's. I can do nothing of my own, but what the Father shows me. There's incredible humility just in the words of Jesus. Of course, in the actions too, he washes his disciples' feet and that. Mm -hmm. So humility, you don't find too much in the world today. Mm-hmm. And there's also a faith and humility connection. Uh, we say faith worketh by love. I, I think that comes from Galatians 5, 6. Love and humility are synonymous. Two times in the scriptures, Jesus marveled at people's faith. Mm. And both times were when people showed abject utter humility. Mm. The first, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 8 with the Roman centurion, a man mm-hmm. of great authority. When he came to Jesus, he just said, Jesus, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. Mm-hmm. Such great humility. Mm-hmm. 
just say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled and said, I have not found such great faith in all Israel. And later on in Matthew chapter 15 of Matthew, there's a Canaanite woman, and Jesus gives her a great test. You know, she's crying out to him, heal my daughter, and Jesus does not even answer her. He's testing and testing her faith. Then she shows such humility and says, even the dogs will eat off the master's table. A lot of people criticize, you know, Jesus for this parable here, this story here, this interchange. But actually, this is, she was saying how the first century Jews, the Pharisees, looked at the Gentiles as Gentile dogs. We were a superior race. They were a lesser race. Jesus came to finish that distinction. We're all God's children. But again, Jesus marveled at her faith mm. when she humbled herself. <laughs> so humility is such a part of the scriptures. And mm. as you embrace humility, you find it more and more in the scriptures, all throughout the epistles and everywhere you look. And amazingly enough, both those examples of humility that you talked about were both, they were both not Jews. They, <laughs> yeah. were, they, were, they, were, they were Gentiles. Exactly. Exactly. You know, some people think that you have to keep sinning to be humble. Mm. You know, oh, how do I stay humble? I have to keep repenting. But Paul was a great example of humility. Mm. And he had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, it said, to keep him humble because he had so many revelations. Mm. But Paul just stayed so busy for Jesus. He doesn't go so much into his sin. Hearsay, time and time again, he said, I'm a chief sinner. I persecuted the church, this and that. He was very aware of his sin, both past sin. And he acknowledged his present sin. One time he lamented, oh, wretched man, there's no good thing in me. <laughs> I want to do good, but I can't do good because of my sinful flesh. But he just gave God the glory. I thank God through Jesus Christ who gives me the victory. The only good thing that we really do is when Jesus empowers us and we get so full of Jesus, so high on the Holy Spirit, we forget ourselves and just live for Jesus. Nightlight. You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. John, another topic that you were teaching in your three-day seminars was religion versus relationship. And this is a topic that we touch on quite regularly on this program. What was your angle on this? Well, I taught religion versus relationship and law versus love. The main point I was trying to bring out was that Jesus came to put an end to religion. Not just the Jewish religion, but all religion. Mm. You see, uh, in John chapter 1, when John saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the sacrifice that took away the sins. Previously, according to Leviticus 17, you needed a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. But Jesus ended that with his sacrifice on the cross. Then again, in John chapter 2, when Jesus enters the temple and turns over the money tables and all that, uh, there's a little exchange in John chapter 2 where Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, look, it took us 46 years to build this temple. They didn't realize that he spoke of the temple of his body. Later on in John 14, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So here we have, right in the book of John, uh, Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. He is the temple, and he is now the high priest. Those are the three main core values of the Jewish religion of his day. Temple, sacrifice, and the high priest. And Jesus, through his death, through his life, made all of that redundant. He was now the temple. He was where God met man. He was the connection. He was the divine. So he brought in a whole new era 
which uh, also St. John mentioned, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Mm. And you can find mention of this in the Old Testament itself. We can read Jeremiah 30 and Ezekiel, I believe it's 31, with references a day was coming where God will make a new covenant with his people. That verse is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. Shall I read that, John? Yes. Uh, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Wow. That's very beautiful how it talks about God, even in the Old Testament, was seeking relationship. Although I was a husband unto them, Isaiah said the same thing. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, Thy husband is thy maker. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at what, he's, uh, what the prophet Ezekiel said in chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27, 28 says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land which I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Beautiful. Again, it's saying how the Lord wants relationship with us. I'll put my spirit within you. It's a very relational thing. Often we think we need to have sacrifice to please God. Well, it's, very, it's part of man. We want to do good works to make him happy. But even way back in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15, Samuel said to obey is better than sacrifice. You can find similar thoughts in Psalm 40, Psalm 50, Psalm 51. Says sacrifices and offerings thou didst not desire. God wants a broken and a contrite heart. Jesus himself said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice in Matthew chapter 9. And Paul emphasized it again in Hebrews 10. It's impossible for sacrifice to take away sins. Jesus said, This is the work of God to believe on him whom the Lord has sent. So that's our work to, to believe. Uh, and the Greek, uh, believe, comes from the word pistevo, which means to drink in, to t- partake of Christ, to partake of these living waters that Jesus talked about in John chapter 4. Take his waters within us every single day. Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus.
And I've been playing a few real oldie oldies on the program recently. That one going back over 30 years from Sam Halbert. I love the Lord. Nightlight's Interview of the Week. And our interview is with John Rose, and he's sharing with us some of the highlights of what he's been teaching to pastors and church leaders and fellowships in Jinja, Mabara, and Ishaka in Western Uganda over the past three weeks. John, for the last week, you're going to do something different and travel to the far north of Uganda to the very remote Kidepo National Park and do a free medical clinic for the tribes people there. Tell us about that. I have some doctor friends from the Middle East who I've been ministering to for the Islamic feast that's coming up, the Feast of the Sacrifice. Instead of sacrificing animals, they decided to join me here in Uganda and donate their time and money to uh, work with children in a village close to Kidepo, a village with no electricity, 800 people, and they were going to attend to the patients, treat them, diagnose them, and they brought thousands of dollars worth of medicine with them to help these people. Well, it's going to be quite an experience. It's a very remote and wild part of the country. Yes, <laughs> it will I'm be an sure experience. You'll have some stories to tell when yes. you come back. Shining Love's Light. You're listening to Nightlight. John, I know you have a lot more that you wanted to share on the topic of relationship with Jesus, but I want to leave enough time for you to also share with us some insights into Islam and how to best relate to Muslims drawn from your experience of living for 34 years in Muslim countries. Maybe you can share some of the lessons that you've learned. Well, I think for any Christians listening, it's good to remember what Paul said to the Jew I became as a Jew. To the Greek, I became as a Greek. And to the Muslim, I became as a Muslim. So that means we should learn something about them and show great respect. Remember earlier we read Philippians chapter 2, Paul said, let each esteem other better than themselves. So I think the only way you can reach a Muslim or anyone for that way, if you have humility and esteem them better than yourselves. And I love Muslims because God loves Muslims. For God so loved the world, that includes Muslims and people of every other faith. So I want to reach him with the same love that Jesus had when the love was that went to the cross. So how do you reach Muslims? I guess it's, you have to remember Muslims are, there's many variety of Muslims as there are of Christians. There's so many different. So as, as in any witness, you have to be a good listener and get to know the Muslims. But I'd like to address this one subject because many times when I meet Christians they talk to me like Muslims are the enemy you know it's dangerous it's well I lived in Indonesia for eight nine years and there's 170 million Muslims there and I'd say maybe 50,000 75 100,000 most are radicalized so that's like barely one out of a thousand or maybe even less than one out of a thousand you'd have to do the math on that but the vast majority of Indonesians that I knew in Java and other islands were very similar to, say, the Catholic neighborhoods I grew up in the States. Catholics, they believed in God, 
they loved in God, but they were very weak on their scripture. And the Muslims in Indonesia, the Java Island in particular, just like, say, the Muslims in Turkey and a few other countries, they don't know their Quran, but they do have a sincere love for God, a deep love for God, and they want to live in peace and harmony, and they want their children to grow up in a good world. I was very impressed by the Indonesian Muslims. They were very much against the Western cultural intrusion of their society, which they felt was taking away their beautiful culture and values, the violent videos, TV, profanities. They wanted to have positive children, just like we do. Basically, the heart of man is the same everywhere. So I think you have to look at Muslims as just like people, just like you and me. And many of them do want a better world. Having said that, it's good to know a little bit about the Quran. Jesus is in the Quran. They call Jesus the Messiah. They call him the Word of God, a spirit from Allah. Okay, they don't teach the crucifixion. They feel God would never let such a good person like Jesus, who was born without a father, according to the Quran, same as us, be crucified on the cross. So therefore they believe God sent another man. So they miss that crucial part, which is the same as the Jews. The Jews miss it as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, the Jews, I mean, the Muslims are closer to Christianity than the Jews because mm-hmm. the Muslims accept him as a great prophet and the Muslims believe that Jesus is coming back in the last days to destroy the Dajjal, the Antichrist. So here you have the Muslims respecting Jesus. When you say the name of Jesus in Islam, you say, peace be upon his name. When I visit Europe and some places in the States, often Jesus is mixed with a curse word. So I appreciate the Muslims and I honor them for that, for revering the name of Jesus, showing great respect. In the Quran, they have miracles that Jesus did that are not recorded in the Bible. John made uh, mention that there's many things, so many things Jesus did couldn't be recorded in the Gospels, but some miracles they have are Jesus spoke from the cradle when there's a question about Mary's integrity. And Jesus spoke how he was born by a miracle. He raised a bird from the dead. Different little miracles that they have in the Quran, not in the Bible. And the Mother Mary, there's a whole book on Mother Mary. Mother Mary is referred to more in the Quran than in the Bible. Uh, There's a whole chapter after her. And uh, I visited, when I was visiting Turkey, I visited the city of Ephesus where Mother Mary's uh, final resting place is. I was so surprised to see Muslims there in Ephesus on pilgrims to Mary. There was a, the day I went, there was almost as many Muslims as there were Christians. Maybe that's an exceptional day. It might have been a Muslim holiday, but it was very surprising to me to see so many Muslims showing such respect to Mary. So I think if we have a more healthy attitude towards Muslims we, and realize they have the same heart as we do, except they don't have Jesus in their heart, of course, for us, but same heart as many people all over the world will be more effective in reaching them. And a lot of people say, oh, the Muslims are the Antichrist, the Muslims are this, the Muslims are that. Well, from what I've seen, I believe a lot of Muslims will be fighting the Antichrist. They will not accept a man who says that he's God. So I look at many of the Muslims as anti-Antichrist, those who will fight against the Antichrist. Well, I think, John, that most people realize that they do need to differentiate between real Muslims and those who call themselves Muslims but perpetrate acts of terror and extreme violence like Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. Well, you could say, does the KKK in the States Mm. have anything to do with true Christianity or Joseph Kony 
Right. Did he have anything to do with the Lord's Resistance Army? Yeah. Did he really have anything to do with Christianity? Mm. Or previously we talked about the, the Crusades or the Inquisition, the Spanish mm. Inquisition, mm. the Christians putting people to death mm. because they believe differently. So ISIS is a perverted form of Islam mm. mixed in with politics. So many Muslims are ashamed of ISIS in Islamic mm. State. And sometimes I say to people who that ISIS is actually the fruit of so-called Christian America's war on Iraq, mm. where Saddam Hussein was actually, okay, he was a dictator, but he was allowing the Christians protection and freedom. And he gave Christian missionaries permission to go anywhere in Iraq, in schools and hospitals, to show the Jesus movie, the Gospel of Luke project it was. So under Saddam Hussein, had, it was great freedom. And they look at George Bush's war as a Christian war because the Christian evangelicals gave him such support. Hmm. So it's sad to say that the Muslims now see American adventures in the Middle East as a new crusade. Sad to say. Hmm. And American adventures in the Middle East left Iraq in the Dark Ages. Under many international treaties, a country occupies a country as the U.S. occupied Iraq. They're supposed to protect the population. Yeah. And there were some weak attempts to protect the population, but it seems as if the U.S.'s number one concern was to protect the oil fields. Yeah. They had more security around the oil fields. These actions have radicalized many Muslims. Yeah. Like recently, I've, uh, I'm witnessing to someone from Al-Qaeda, yeah. and he's become a volunteer joining us with our Christian projects. And he told me his life story. He joined Al-Qaeda, nothing to do with Islam. He just saw them as an effective way to overthrow Assad in Syria. But then he became disillusioned with Muslims killing Muslims. He came to another country in the Middle East, and him and I are working now together with Syrian refugees. I give him lots of Christian materials. He posts them on his Facebook, gives them to others, and that. And I believe in a short time he will receive Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the only way I could have reached this uh, Al-Qaeda member was because I treated him with such respect. Mm-hmm. And because I showed him such respect, he has shown me respect. Mm-hmm. Interesting enough, Brother Andrew from Open Doors Ministry, who in the 50s and 60s and up to the 90s brought millions of Bibles into the communist world, he has now worked in the Islamic world. He finds great fruit in the Islamic nations. Mm. He recently testified that when he went to Afghanistan, he had more people come to his meetings showing greater respect to the words of Jesus than when he's back home in Holland. Mm. So if we look at Muslims in a positive light and try to, as we should everyone, because everyone is God's child. We're broken images of God. We're flawed images of his creation. All of us have sin. But if we treat them with respect, we'll be a lot more effective in reaching them. John, let's pause for a song. And this one came to my mind while you were talking about loving and winning Muslims. It's from a group called Heart to Heart, whose members were missionaries in Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Palestine for many years and ministered love, hope, encouragement in their concerts throughout the Middle East. And this song is a beautiful example of that. It's to the Palestinians in this case. This is Christy Gibson with a song penned by Michael Dooley, I believe. The Phoenix. There's a long stifled 
feeling all right while listening to Nightlight. John, it's great to have you with us on Nightlight. We're coming to the end of the show, running out of time, but maybe you can wrap up with any other points you want to share about relating to and reaching Muslims. One key fact I found in witnessing with some Muslims is the end time, because hmm. the Muslims very much believe in the Judgment Day. And there are some prophecies, maybe in the Hadiths, the saints of the Prophet Muhammad, or they believe Jesus will come back in Syria instead of Jerusalem. So they believe the Syrian civil war has really opened up the road to Kiamet, the judgment day, the end time. Uh, I'll give an example. In 1999, I visited Turkey. I was at the earthquake site. And I was drinking tea. I was bringing food to the people, supplies and that. And I was drinking tea with a Kurdish family there. I'd known them for a week now. And one night we started talking about religion. And they said... Uh, about their belief. And I said, yes, it's very similar, our beliefs. We both believe that Jesus is coming back. And all the signs of the end time are here with this great earthquake they just had in Turkey. It was in the newspapers. This was like Kiamet, the judgment day. So the earthquakes, the wars, the famine, the disease, all these things are similar. And we're talking, there's a group of Kurdish people. I said, but there's one sign in the Bible that's not in the Quran. And it seems like it's about to be fulfilled very soon. And I was speaking, these Kurds were like on the edge of their seats. Tell us this sign. What is it? <laughs> so I read them Revelation 13, verses 15 through 18, about the coming mark of the beast and how 2,000 years ago this was impossible to be fulfilled. There was no technology where everyone can have a number in their hand to buy or sell. But now everything's being emphasized, chip money, electronic cash transfer. And these people said, oh my gosh, I want to draw up, buy a Bible and study it. And the same thing happened in Indonesia. I was teaching the secretary to a minister of the government, and he was actually an Islamic preacher. And when I told him the same thing, there's a sign in, in the Bible that's not in the Quran. I read him, read him Revelation 13, verses 15 to 17. And he tells, I have to buy a Bible and study these things for myself. So use that in your witnessing. It's a very effective way to you know, get their attention and get them to look in the Bible. Because... Often, I cannot lead them to Christ right away. They've been so conditionalized since birth that Jesus is not the Son of God. He's just a prophet, that God could not have a son. It's part of their way of life all their life. But when you get them to open up the Bible, there's something very, very wonderful. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, all men will draw, be drawn unto me. And when they start reading the word, they see such a light in the gospel. That's not in the Quran. The Quran is very much like the Old Testament. It's law rituals. It's dry compared to the life-giving flow of the words of Jesus. And then Jesus does the words. We had one uh, Islamic convert from the lineage of Muhammad, and she was living with us translating materials in Arabic, Christian materials, and she became a missionary. But living as a Christian, it took her nine months to believe that Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. And that was from a dream that she had. Mm. So some things People cannot believe unless God reveals it to them. Mm -hmm. So please be patient with your Muslim friends and brothers. Uh, it takes time, but God will reveal it to them. And in some places of Syria and Iraq now where there's uh, so much war and you Christians, it's dangerous to even go in there. God has given them dreams about Jesus and many Muslims are turning to Jesus and they might be these other sheep have I which are not of these fold in John 10. Verse 16, Jesus talked about, and many of them might grow up to be our helpers as we fight against the Antichrist world government that is coming. 
It was very interesting. Recently, there was a meeting against abortion and birth control and different things uh, that the UN is imposing upon different Islamic nations, saying you must have abortion and birth control. And Muslims and Christians got together in a meeting saying, how can we fight against unitedly against these uh, anti-God influences that the United Nations and other groups are throwing upon us, gay marriages and that. So I hope we can work more together in the future with understanding and love. You're with Nightlight. John, finally, back to the classes you were teaching in Uganda on this topic of reaching Muslims. What kind of questions did the Christians have? Because many of them are living alongside Muslims in their neighborhood. Well, some people said, well, it's not the same Jesus in the Quran that is in the Bible, the Gospels. I just said, you know, I don't argue that. I don't go into that because I'm trying to reach their souls. I look beyond that. And someone else said, but they te- they don't accept Jesus as the Son of God. And again, I gave them the same answer. I don't argue with that. But with the Muslim, I use John chapter 1. I say, Jesus is the Logos of God. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was a, was a word. The word was with God. The word was God. In the Greek, the word they use is Logos. In the beginning was a Logos. So I just tell them, well, Jesus is actually an expression of God. He came here to show us exactly how God was like. And everywhere he went, he went around doing good, healing people, loving people, helping people. And the Muslims can accept that, that he is God's logos. As I said, concerning the Son of God, that's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not for us to take our Bible and bang them over the head with the Bible. We have to let the Holy Spirit work in their lives. And we have to do a bit more praying for them depend on the power of prayer. Paul said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of power and of the Spirit. And I think a lot of the Spirit is praying for them and praying for the Lord to do the job of reaching them. I mean, look how Jesus was with the sinner, the woman at the well. He spoke to a, wo- a woman, which was against traditions of first century uh, Judaism, that culture there. It was a sinful woman, and she was a Samaritan. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus looked beyond all that, all her sin, living in adultery with different you know, men. He looked beyond all that. He saw a soul who needed God's love. And because of his love for her, she became one of the first women evangelists, evangelized the whole town there in Samaria. And Jesus ended up spending two days there and said many of the Samaritans believed because Jesus loved her so much, he looked beyond her religion her culture, her way of life. He saw a hungry soul that needed God's love. Bringing you peace in the midst of the storm. You're listening to Nightlight. John, thanks so much for sharing with us. And thanks so much for answering the call and coming to fill Melvin's shoes. I hear he's coming back for three months next May on his sixth mission trip to Uganda. And if you could come too... Well, you guys make a powerful team. By God's grace. And thanks for having me, Simon. Well, that's it for now. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please feel free to share it with others. I'll be back again next time with a brand new edition of Nightlight. Until then, God bless and keep you and make you a blessing to others. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.